You're listening to KMUZ Turner. Visit our website at kmuz.org to see our complete program schedule and learn more about supporting KMUZ. Welcome to The Forum, our weekly public affairs program. We edit and rebroadcast recordings of lectures, interviews, and presentations of public interest to the Mid-Willamette Valley. Find our Facebook page, The Forum on KMUZ, for upcoming topics and to leave comments. Today's presentation is the second in a two-part series for Salem City Club. Earlier this year, the topic was green energy and a description of the grid that carries electricity to northwestern states and two Canadian provinces. This time around, the focus was an overview of how we're making electricity today and what direction the constant increase is taking already. Program lead George Dyer introduced the speakers. First, John Fazio with the Power and Conservation Council will share that group's research with whether their 2021 power plan for the Northwest meets our needs. Then we will hear from Brett Green, representing Portland General Electric, Salem's major electric supplier. Uh, He will be telling us what PGE is doing to purchase, transmit, and keep our electricity affordable uh, through customer participation. We wanna thank both of our speakers today for taking the time to keep us informed on this important aspect in our daily living. Now, John, will you be keeping the lights on? We certainly hope so. (laughs) Thank you for having me today. Uh, So I am John Fazio. I'm a senior systems analyst with the Northwest Power and Conservation Council. And I would like to share with you uh, briefly the topics that I'd like to cover today. So the first question is, uh, uh, who is the Northwest Power and Conservation Council and what jurisdiction do we have? Is it another one of those secret government organizations? Uh, And what do we do? Um, We're not secret, but not very many people know about us. Um, Then after that, um, after that brief introduction, I will talk about the council's forecast for future resource needs for the region uh, and a summary of our 2021 power plan. And then I will try to address the question of whether we can keep the lights on uh, using green power. So to begin with, what is the Northwest Power and Conservation Council? Well, in 1980, Congress passed the Northwest Power Act that authorized the four Northwest states, Idaho, Montana, Oregon, and Washington, to develop a regional power plan and a fish and wildlife program to balance the Northwest needs uh, for energy uh, and the environment. So each state had to pass legislation to form the council. We are an interstate compact. There aren't very many of those. I think there's only one other one in the country. So each governor of the, of the, of the states um, appoints two council members. There are eight council members. And we are funded uh, by rates collected by the Bonneville Power Administration. Uh, The council's power plan um, is the objective of the power plan is for us to develop a long-term resource and energy efficiency acquisition strategy that will ensure that we have an adequate, efficient, and and economic power supply into the future. The major components of that plan include a projection of future electricity demand over the next 20 years, And we take a least cost with acceptable risk resource strategy, and we offer a set of regional uh, actions for uh, utilities and other organizations to take. Um, No utility plans for 100% reliable system because that would be extraordinarily expensive, but we try to balance the risk of a potential shortfall with the cost of of keeping the the lights on. What jurisdiction do we have? Well, uh, the council, by statute, um, has jurisdiction over the Bonneville Power Administration in the sense that uh, any resources that the Bonneville Power Administration um, thinks that it needs for its future needs must be consistent with the power plan. By tradition, we've been around for, well, since 1980. Uh, By tradition, and because we do all of our analysis in the public domain and in public forums, Um, We serve as an independent reference for all regional utilities, commissions, and other policymakers. And there's one very large caveat that I'd like to make sure that that people understand is that the council uh, is not planning resources for all the utilities in the region. Uh, We recognize, in fact, that the regional planning we do 
uh, is not intended to be a substitute for individual utilities re uh, um, integrated resource plans. And that uh, many utilities, in fact, most utilities will not look like the region. And so their resource needs uh, will be different from, uh, from the plans that we come up with. So what's the point of the plan? Well, besides guiding Bonneville and its, uh, in its acquisition of future resource needs, uh, the plan also offers a set of cost-effective resources that utilities can and should consider as they develop their own long-term resource plans. The council interacts with a lot of entities. We have scheduled public meetings throughout the region uh, every month. We also have public advisory committees uh, that look at uh, demand forecasts, uh, generating resources, energy efficiency, et cetera, et cetera. And we also participate in not just regional, but national and international forums on power planning, including the IEEE, which is an engineering organization, uh, NREL, uh, which is a, a national lab, universities, and other stakeholders. So with that as a background, let's take a quick look at the regional power supply, again, this is for the four Northwest states, uh, including the part of Montana that is west of the Rockies. No surprise here, this pie chart shows the makeup of our power supply. Uh, more than half of the capacity comes from hydroelectric generation, but I'd like to point out, and I hope my pointer works also, uh, that we do have uh, quite a bit of gas-fired uh, generation still in the region. Uh, we have some coal still in the region. We have one nuclear plant left, and we have been building up our wind generation capacity and uh, some solar and other miscellaneous resources. Uh, one thing that, a couple of things I'd like to emphasize here that are very important, I think, is that since the onset, the council has been promoting <clears throat> and effectively um, getting the implementation of energy efficiency uh, throughout the region. Since 1980, uh, the programs that the council has, has put forth and the codes and standards that have been applied to appliances and to home builders have saved the region over 7,000 average megawatts of energy, uh, which is equivalent to about seven nuclear plants. And that is something that we are very proud of. Um, and also cost-effective, a lot cheaper than seven nuclear coal plants and cleaner. Uh, the other part that I'd like to mention is that uh, something that doesn't show up in this pie chart, but is also a very integral part of our planning, and as you saw in the uh, first session, is that we are very well interconnected with the Canadians and with the rest of the West. And because different parts of the West uh, have their peak demands at different times of the year, it offers a great opportunity for sharing resources. And uh, quite often and historically, the Northwest has uh, imported power, surplus power from California during the winter when it's kind of their off-peak season. And uh, the opposite happens in the summer uh, when California has their peak seasons and we generally have uh, more surplus or spring and you know late spring when the runoff, um, when the uh, snow melts and we have high runoff in the river systems and we have a lot of hydropower. So a lot of things are changing. One thing that we're seeing is that uh, cleaner laws and policies that are being implemented across the West are, are pushing for more uh, retirement of fossil fuel burning resources. In particular, this slide here shows uh, from 2018 through, through the end of this decade uh, that we are expecting to see over 4,000 megawatts of coal capacity being retired, uh, which is more than half of what we have right now. At the same time, uh, this slide here shows uh, kind of a snapshot of where we think our electricity demand will be over the next uh, 20 years. Uh, right now, our at 29, actually this is 2019, uh, the demand for electricity in the Northwest is about 20,000 megawatts. Um, and we, we don't know, of course, how demand will change in the future, but uh, in our reference case, we're assuming that um, it can grow, it can decline over time, or it can increase over time uh, between about uh, plus or minus 5% over the next five years and about plus or minus seven or 8% uh, by the end of the 20 year horizon. Now, this is our reference case and it assumes sort of current practices and current policies and does not include uh, any policies that might lead to um, decarbonization and electrification. 
uh, and the policies, for example, to uh, push uh, higher acquisition of electric vehicles, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but this gives you kind of a picture of the uh, uh, kind of a uh, snapshot of what we think our electricity demand will be, reference case, uh, and what our resources are. However, so how do we how do we assess whether we have sufficient uh, uh, resources to meet our needs? Well, to do that, uh, the council built a computer model that simulates the operation of every single resource in the Northwest and also some resources outside of the Northwest on an hourly basis for an entire year. And we do that, we call it a Monte Carlo program because we simulate that operation uh, thousands of times. And every time we simulate it, we pick a different uh, temperature profile for the year with different demands relative to the temperature, with different precipitation and river flows. We pick different solar generation patterns and different wind patterns. And of course, we model forced outages or breakdowns of thermal resources, generating resources. So we do this thousands of times for the same operating year. And then we record all hours that where load cannot be served. And the council has established uh, a resource adequacy standard using a metric that we call the loss of load probability. And that, that uh, metric may not mean much, but what it, how we define it is that it's the number of years that we simulate that have at least one shortfall divided by the total number of years that we simulate. Let me translate that into English. <laughs> uh, in other words, the council deems the power supply to be adequate if the likelihood of having one or more potential shortfalls in a future year is less than or equal to 5%. And by shortfall here, we don't necessarily mean a blackout. So it's not that the council is planning for 5% blackout, uh, probability of 5% blackout. What this really means, because we cannot model every single contingency resource and contingency action that utilities have to keep the lights on. Uh, what this standard really represents is the likelihood that utilities in the region will have to take some kind of emergency and often very expensive actions in order to keep the lights on like what happened in 2001. Um, so this is the standard that we use. Uh, we analyze the power supply five years out um, if the loss of load probability is greater than 5%, uh, then we, we say that we have, we have to acquire resources. But we don't just look at a reference year um, because that has certain assumptions about um, projected demand using current assumptions about uh, electric vehicle use or projections for increased air conditioning, et cetera, et cetera. But there are many possible future scenarios with different policies. For example, besides the baseline condition, which are current policies, um, we could have a situation where um, all of a sudden uh, people want every coal plant retired. What happens, what, what happens and what resources do we need if all of a sudden we retire all the coal plants early? What happens if we um, have aggressive decarbonization policies? Like some cities are now saying new buildings must be all electric. What if we have a push for more electric vehicles? Obviously that's going to increase the demand. So we, we understand that there is a tremendous amount of uncertainty in what might happen in the future. And what the council does is that it runs its analysis not just for baseline conditions, but also for, I think, seven or eight or nine different policy scenarios uh, and looks at the results of each one. And I should have made that last bullet in red, but then the council uses its judgment based on the results from all the scenarios that we examine to build a resource strategy that it thinks will provide an adequate supply without overbuilding because we're trying to balance the cost of new resources uh, against the risk of having a shortfall, which might be expensive. And the penalties of going either direction are not symmetric. If we overbuild, that means that rates go up and, and rate payers get mad. But if we underbuild and the lights go out, they get even madder. <laughs> so, so we're trying to build sufficient, or we're trying to suggest what resources uh, are needed that will be adequate without overbuilding. Uh, and with minimizing the risk of potential shortfalls. So with that background then, I'm trying to keep a tab on my time. 
what does the 2021 power plan look like? Well, this is a snapshot of the resources that the council is recommending. It is like a uh, supply curve. It's just like a box of tools that we can choose depending on how the future unfolds. But the council is recommending that the region acquire 750 to 1,000 average megawatts of energy efficiency in the next five years, uh, with a minimum of 2,400 by the end of the 20-year horizon. Um, we are recommending 3,500 megawatts of renewable resources, which include a mix of wind, solar, biomass, distributed generation, uh, potentially batteries uh, over the next five years. And then there are some demand response uh, programs uh, that we think would help. And these are programs that will help to shave or cut back on the peak demand, such as demand voltage regulation or time of use rates, uh, which are which are used in other parts of the country and they are very effective. And there are also some other uh, potential market tools uh, like uh, requiring maybe capacity and other reserve requirements that can be carried by utilities to try to offset uh, those, um, those rare times when perhaps you have uh, poor water conditions and, um, and say uh, very cold temperatures and you lose a couple of resources. So this, this is our plan and I can certainly answer questions about it um, later if there's time. But the question at hand is what about uh, moving ahead with decarbonization? Can we, well, by the way, uh, there, if you look at this mix of resources, there is no fossil fuel um, uh, uh, generation in this, in this mix. And so some utilities, of course, um, are wondering whether, whether we still have the same amount of control over our, our electrical system, uh, because unfortunately we can't control when the wind blows, can't really control when the sun shines, especially in the Northwest. It may shine, but we have cloudy periods, et cetera, et cetera. But remember, this is a part of a huge system that does have a lot of controllable resources. The hydroelectric system, which can be dispatched, it makes up over half of the capacity of the region's power supply. But moving forward um, and wrapping up, a couple more slides. Uh, this slide shows the historic and projected Pacific Northwest emissions by sector. And I apologize for the small font, but I will read them to you. What we're showing here are uh, millions of metric tons of CO2 equivalent emissions on the vertical scale. In 1990, we were at 150 million metric tons. Uh, the red square represents the emissions from the transportation sector. Uh, the light green is from industrial sector. The yellow is from residential and commercial. And the green is from the electric power system. You can see that between 1990 and 2005, um, everything got bigger. Well, not, that's not quite true. Actually, the industrial and agricultural, or the industrial without agricultural went down somewhat. But nonetheless, we went from about 150 to about 175 million metric tons. Now, under the current baseline policy, with no new electrification policies, but with the plan as is, uh, by 2041, we can get the emissions out of the, the electric sector down from 54 million metric tons to 17 million metric tons, which is great. Unfortunately, you can see that the transportation sector grows from 78 to 109 million metric tons. Of course, that's without any decarbonization policies or any push to uh, increase uh, electric vehicles or electric, uh, uh, electric buses and trucks, et cetera, et cetera. So the council decided that they decided to, to tackle a scenario of to get to decarbonization. And so the question, the results from that study, and by the way, we couldn't achieve a full decarbonization. And I'll explain why in a minute. But the results of that study show that if we move to a, a path towards decarbonization over the next 20 years, these charts here show the increase in the amount of renewable resources, energy efficiency, and, de and demand response resources that we would need uh, to help us achieve that. Um, the red and blue lines represent the amount of um, renewables, energy efficiency, and demand response that we need under the baseline condition and under an early coal retirement condition. 
But you can see that the dashed line, which is the projected need of, for renewables by 2041 under the partial decarbonization scenario um, are much greater. 35,000 megawatts by 2041. Remember in our plan, we're calling for 3,500 in the next five years, that's 10 times more. Over 7,000 megawatts of energy efficiency by 2041 and 6,000 megawatts of demand response. And even if we do all of this, unfortunately, we still can't, cannot get to full decarbonization. Um, uh, strategies that would push us to full decarbonization would increase our electricity demand by, by over 300%. Our current level of demand for electricity of 20,000 average megawatts would grow to almost 70,000 average megawatts by 2050. Given the current technologies that we have, uh, even under these aggressive decarbonization policies, we cannot reach zero emissions by 2050. And we don't have the technology in the power sector to match the demand that would come with that. So the study we did was to do the best we could. We assumed that replacement of vehicles and appliances and equipment in homes and businesses and manufacturing was at an accelerated but a possibly obtainable pace. And electricity demand in this case increased by about 50%. So from 20,000 megawatts, we're looking at a scenario that now has a 30,000 megawatt uh, load in today's loads. So the point is, it's going to be very difficult for the region to reach zero emissions, especially if we want zero emissions from all sectors. But even from the power sector, it's going to be difficult uh, because as other sectors decarbonize, especially let's say in the transportation sector, and if everybody were to have an electric vehicle, uh, there would be so much demand for electricity that we would really be scrambling to, to find sources for that uh, electricity. And, and the answer is not just building more wind and solar, uh, because uh, it would be it would not be cost effective, and so we need to. There is a challenge in front of us, uh, and the council will revisit this uh, in two years, and then the next power plan will come out in five years, where we hope have more information. So it's kind of good news and bad news. The good news is we don't need any fossil fuel burning resources over the next five years to keep the lights on. Um, as we move more and more toward decarbonization. Uh, and to, to minimize the amount of carbon that we put in the air, it's going to become more of a challenge and we'll have to work with others to, to improve our battery uh, technology, to maybe improve the sharing of resources across regions. Uh, we're doing our best. Question is, how do we connect with individual utilities? And my answer to that is, well, we do long-term planning, but so do they. And the work that I do and the work that uh, Brett does is challenging. If we do our job right, nobody pays any attention. If the lights go out, then people get mad. But the difference is that if the lights go out, they call Brett, not me. I think at this point, I'll turn it over to him and you can yell at him. Thank you. <laughs> You're tuned to All Volunteer Community Radio KMUZ Turner, broadcasting to the Mid-Willamette Valley on 88.5 and 100.7 FM. This is our weekly public affairs program, The Forum. I'm forum producer Stella Schaffer. Data centers, huge warehouses full of computers that help run Google from a center in the Dells, as well as cryptocurrency companies worldwide, and plenty of local users burn a lot of power to keep us in the digital age, as well as heating and cooling our homes and businesses. John Fazio with the Pacific Northwest Power and Conservation Council tackled conservation and how to keep the lights on with present and future generating centers. Up next, Brett Green from Portland General Electric, which serves most of Salem, told the midday panel organized by Salem City Club what PGE is doing to keep electricity affordable. All right. Thank you for that. I just want to say that that really does provide the high-level 50,000-foot concept of planning. And we're going to jump in now to a deeper dive and really look at how is this utility PGE planning for our future. You know, as we look at PGE and the, the opportunity that lies ahead for us, you know, we really here on this slide, you can see that our service territory really runs the I-5 corridor. So Salem up to Portland, 
uh, a little bit east and west from I-5, but really it's where the majority of the population in Oregon lives. Now, to John's point, the resources we have to make sure that the lights stay on today really reside outside of our service territory. So you'll see that a lot of them are up north uh, at our Beaver and Port Westward site, which is up in Klatskanai. Uh, mm -hmm. We also have several resources that are out near Boardman, Oregon. And what you probably don't see a lot of here is a lot of hydro. So we do have some resources down in the Clackamas River. Um, but the majority of the hydro John was referencing is up on the Columbia River or even further north up into Canada. And you don't see those in our stack, which in, we'll touch on that in a little bit more in a second. Um, maybe lastly, PGE owns a significant amount of distribution lines, which is really focused on getting the power to your house and your business. We do not own transmission lines. Uh, Bonneville Power Administration owns the majority of those, and we'll talk about that in a minute as well. All right, so carrying forward John's message, let's take a, a maybe a jump down into PGE and how do we provide you electricity today? So right now we have 350 average megawatts of wind. And I think what's important is wind does not necessarily show up when we want. Um, so for instance, the wind that we own today shows up about 30% of the time. And it, for some reason, likes to show up in the middle of the night, not in the afternoons or the early evenings when we are all consuming power. Solar, we have 110 average megawatts. Uh, again, solar east of the mountains in Oregon shows up about 25% of the time. West of the mountains where we all live, it only shows up about 12% of the time. And as we all know, on a day like today, as I look out the window, it's, uh, it's quite cloudy. So it's a resource that's just not overly reliable as we look at keeping the lights on. As we jump to hydro, so you'll see that we do have 1300 megawatts in our portfolio. A lot of that has started to go away and will go away. And the key driver behind that is where those resources reside, they are experiencing significant increase in demand largely driven by data centers, as well as cryptocurrency companies. So they are now consuming a lot of that hydro resource that we at Portland General have relied on for the better part of a hundred years. And then the last piece is our thermal fleet, which is the gas in the coal plants. And as John mentioned, the coal plants are going away. So we closed Boardman back in 2020 and our other coal plant, Coal Strip, we are working towards an exit of that plant in the near future. And maybe what's most important now and the biggest change in the last year is House Bill 2021, which passed out of the legislative session last year, articulates that we have to reduce our emissions by 80% from an average that was 2010 by the year 2030. And so as you look at this 2,138 megawatts of thermal generation we have today, in 2030, we will only be allowed to use approximately 450 megawatts of thermal generation. And it will have to be gas, it cannot be coal because there's a law that prohibits coal past 2030 in Oregon. So you can see that we're losing hydro, we are losing access to our thermal fleet, and you have renewable generation that is variable in nature and very reliant on mother nature. So that absolutely increases the risk around, can we keep the lights on? Now to John's point also, we are very much experiencing what we call load growth at PGE or increase in demand. Um, a lot of that is driven by electrification, which can show up in the form of electric vehicles, uh, but we are also seeing significant um, fuel switching from gas to electric. And so what you'll see here is charts very similar to what John presented, that historically our load has been, let's call it, on a peak, a summer peak, which we are now officially a summer peaking utility uh, that went from roughly 3,000 megawatts to last June during the heat dome, if you remember when it was 116 degrees in Portland, and I believe it was 118 in Salem, we actually saw our biggest peak ever at just under 4,500 megawatts. And as you look at electrification and fuel switching, 
we believe that our load could grow to easily 5,000, 6,000, maybe even 7,000 megawatts by 2040. So combining the previous slide and this slide, we are losing access to reliable generation and we are experiencing significant load growth. Yes, it is a challenge to get to 2030 and 2040 as we think about decarbonization. But I do think that we have a solid plan and that plan really is gonna focus on a few things, which we will jump to here. So the first is we have to add renewables. And you saw John mention that 3,500 is in their plan, but it may need to be 35,000 megawatts of renewable generation. We agree. Uh, right now we are out procuring for approximately 500 to 700 megawatts of renewable resources. And we think that there's gonna be a need for another, let's call it 2,000 to 3,000 megawatts prior to 2030. That is likely gonna come in the form of wind and solar, but as technology advances, we can start to pair those technologies with battery storage so that when that wind and solar generates and we don't actually need it for consumption, we can store it and then move it later in the day or earlier in the day so that we can move around our demand. Second bucket is coal. So as I mentioned, Boardman is now out of our stack and we are moving to get out of coal strip. Um, that is a significant acceleration. So Boardman had been planned to run through 2040 and coal strip is currently scheduled to run through 2042. Um, that, at least that's the depreciable life. We have made a commitment to accelerate that to 2025. So those will come out of our stack. Now, as we think about the remaining thermal assets we have, which are almost all gonna be natural gas, I mentioned that we can only have 450 megawatts going forward. So what we're looking at is how do we now make those resources cleaner and more flexible so that they can back up the wind and solar. They ramp up and they ramp down more quickly. We don't have solutions today, but we are in active conversations to learn about new technologies. Those can include renewable natural gas. They can include hydrogen. And as you think about 2040, there could be new opportunities. Um, we are also looking at carbon capture technologies. These are all probably a few years out from being viable, uh, but I would say by 2030, we would anticipate that some of our current gas plants will run on an alternative fuel, and that should help us on our path. Now, the last piece, and John hit on this hard as well, it's really around the customer and the role that we all play. So energy efficiency has been a very big contributor to the progress we've made in decarbonization over the last 20, 30, 40 years. But I will tell you the low hanging fruit has been achieved. It's going to be harder, but we can work with our cities and our communities and our legislature to continue to drive mandates around permitting. So when you build a new house or a multifamily jurisdiction or a new business that you have to adopt certain technologies that meet certain criteria to eliminate the amount of carbon that's being emitted into the, into the world. Now we also have demand response and what we are calling flexible load. So historically that has really been done more at the large scale effort. So the commercial industrial level, we really view the residential customer as a massive key to achieving our decarbonized future. And we'll jump into more detail here in a sec, but that's going to look a lot more like solar on your roof, a battery in your house. You probably have an electric vehicle. You're going to have a heat pump. And then for those of you that have already adopted smart technologies, like a thermostat in your house or a refrigerator that optimizes energy, and it's all going to be controlled by your cool little smartphone. Um, but we see that as probably one of the largest contributors to the future of decarbonization. So today, what are you as a customer able to do to contribute to this decarbonization future? Right now, we do offer the ability for you to invest in technology in your house. So a smart thermostat, 
as well as smart appliances. And what you can do is sign up with PGE to give us access to that thermostat or that device. And during our summer peak events, we will call on that to ask you to turn your air conditioning down a couple degrees for a couple hours during our peak load events. Or in the winter, we'll ask you to turn your furnace down for a couple hours. We also have several green future offerings we have. And really that is your opportunity to, on your monthly bill, pay an incremental amount that is relatively cheap. And all of those dollars are invested in additional renewable resources. So it accelerates our path to buying all the renewables that we need to buy to hit that goal. Now we also are seeing a large focus at the community level. And this really brings into the question around equity and how do we make sure that not just those that can afford, but actually those that want and need uh, decarbonization to be part of their own personal self journey. And so we are looking at new and different ways to make sure that everybody participates in the decarbonization journey. And so that could look like solar on a school or a hospital. Um, we're also looking at how do we address this from a resiliency perspective, as we know that in the past couple of years, we've experienced ice storms and wildfires. And should those lead to disruption of the transmission or distribution system, we want to make sure that you all can keep your lights on. And so again, that looks like investments that are historically different than what we've done. So it is really becoming localized to your house and to your community. So as we look to the next couple of years, where is PGE laser focused? Yes, we have to add renewables, but it's really working with you, the consumer, to how do you add rooftop solar? How do you add storage, EV charging, heat pumps, smart appliances? And how can we incentivize you to not only adopt those technologies, but more importantly, utilize those technologies so that we can really shift the consumption of your energy to the times of day that we can either purchase power on the markets more cheaply, or if it's not available, shift it so that we don't have to go purchase power. And a good example of that is we know that in the middle of the day, California has significant amounts of solar energy and they will not even sell it to it. They will pay us to take that solar energy in the middle of the day because they don't need it. And so if we can shift our consumption here in Oregon to utilize that free power in the middle of the day, as opposed to five o'clock in the evening, that makes a significant impact on our ability to achieve decarbonization, not only reliably, but even affordably. So maybe lastly, as we look at where are we going in the future, we are right now in the midst of three of the critical planning documents that we put together. And this really starts with the work that John and his team does at the Power Council. So this is the utility level version of that. So we are looking at a distribution plan, a resource plan, and an integrated resource plan. And really the distribution resource plan focuses on really what I just chatted about. How does rooftop solar, how does battery storage, how do those technologies fit? And what types of investment are needed on our grid to make those technologies bi-directional? So if you remember, the current grid today is one-directional. So you have a power plant in Eastern Oregon, it moves power to your house. In the future, if you are generating on your roof and you are storing that, you have the ability then to push that power back to the grid. And so we have to build the technology and the capability to enable you to do that. And that's gonna be a, a, quite the fun little endeavor. Um, we have already invested significantly in that and we will continue to do so. The integrated resource plan that really looks at how do demand actions and supply actions best meet our future. And that's where the acquisition of significant renewables comes into play, as well as investments in alternative technologies like battery storage at a utility scale, um, but also hydrogen will come into play. And lastly, the clean energy plan that is new 
and it will be the first time filed for us next spring. And that's going to really look at all of these questions we're talking about here today and how we intend to keep the lights on when we hit 2030. And so to the question that's been raised to John and I, can we keep the lights on? I think the answer is yes, but I can promise you that it's going to take the collective we to get to that future and the consumer is going to have a much more critical role in getting there. And so PGE encourages you to be aware, participate, and learn on this journey with us because we're all going to be required to adapt and change as we move into this decarbonized future. Let's get started with the question. And the, the first one is about the charts. And um, Brett and John, will your can, can City Club send your charts, your uh, slide presentation uh, out to members? Absolutely. Yes. Perfect. <clears throat> Perfect. Um, so now the next question, and this from Kathy Moyd, um, does the modeling take into take into sorry about that uh, take into account the availability of power from southern states with different demand profiles? Yes, the answer is yes, we do. Uh, I mean, it, it happens all the time. Uh, I think the the uh, consideration there, though, is that um, we need to know how much might be available when the entire West is under stress. You know, if there's a heat wave across the entire West or if there's a wildfire in California and the transmission is blocked, then we may not be able to get it. So the amount that we rely on uh, from uh, other states is limited, but we do uh, uh, share resources. It goes both ways. Uh, we share resources to the south when we have surplus, and they do the same when they have surplus. Uh, they send it up to the north. We don't rely completely on them because sometimes it's not there. Thanks for that, John. And now this question from Lee Mercer. As wind is a larger contributor than some of the other clean sources, what keeps us from major, for major ramping up of wind throughout the northwest to make up the deficit of clean energy we seem to be facing? Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll jump in first. And I, I think the, the concern with wind as well as solar, as I mentioned, is it's a resource that doesn't show up as often as we would like. And so let me just paint a quick picture for you. In the winter months and in the summer months, because of the weather patterns here in the Northwest, we generally see very little, if any, wind production. And so that's December, January, and July, August, September. And those are also the months where we have the largest demand. And so as we look at wind, it's really a challenging asset. We like the asset, however, it doesn't show up the right time. And so until we have the ability to store wind more economically, I think it's gonna to continue to be a bit of a challenge. I agree. And I say that right now we're using the hydro system as a big battery to kind of uh, uh, balance out the, the wind generation. When we get too much, we store it in the hydro to the extent we can. And, uh, and then we uh, use that energy to make up the gaps when wind isn't blowing. But you have to realize that the Columbia River um, hydroelectric system is a multi-use system. It's not just for power. Uh, it has a lot of operating constraints for fish and wildlife, navigation, irrigation, uh, logging, recreation, all sorts of stuff that we have to pay attention to. So the ability of the hydro system to store and act as a battery for wind, um, while it's big, it is limited. And so as we improve our, our storage capability outside the hydro system, that will make wind even more cost-effective. So it seems like battery storage is critical. Our storage is critical. So with the technology advancement in batteries, do you see that as speeding up incredibly and certainly meeting a need that we don't see today? We're seeing it speed up in other regions, not here so much because it's competing against the hydro system. And so it's not as cost effective here in the Northwest, uh, although it is being developed. And there's a lot of development on the uh, on the meter side of the, you know, like home batteries, like Tesla batteries that, that are used in combination with uh, rooftop solar. Uh, we're seeing more and more of that. Yeah, that's a great question. So we see battery absolutely as part of the solution. I think the challenge right now is for it to be cost effective you can only size it and build it to support for roughly four hours. And we know that when we have heat events and cooling events, those usually last multiple days, if not weeks. And so four hours really is not gonna make much of a dent in the need that we have. But those technologies are advancing and they're coming down in cost. And so I, I do see them as playing a critical role for the next couple of decades for sure. 
Hey, thank you. And our next question is from Russ Beaton, Russ or Delana Beaton. Thank you, fellows, for a great presentation. Some years ago, I heard of a potential technology where the homeowner could, in effect, put a maximum load on, on uh, their system. And, and it would automatically shut off, like, you know, you turn on your cooking stove, uh, it would shut off your freezer temporarily or your hot water heater or something like that. Is, and, and obviously, um, it, it would be uh, much more of an incentive if we got into demand time pricing, you know, differential pricing. But is anything like that technology available to homeowners now? Sure, just use a smaller fuse. That was a, that was a joke. <laughs> Sorry, Brett, go ahead, you take it. <laughs> oh, that's good. Uh, I mean, there's smart appliances out there, right? So refrigerators, uh, stoves, washers, and dryers. And so they have the ability to naturally sense um, what is more efficient or less efficient. Now, I think for PGE, we are developing what we call our time of use or time of day uh, pricing option. And we've run pilots with that. It is available. We have not seen adoption. And so I think what we're realizing is the incentive for you, the consumer, to participate. We need to change that. And so that's what we're really focused on is how do we look at the supply side and the demand side to make sure that the pricing options drive the right behaviors? And I'm not sure we've done that well in the past. So we're really evolving quickly in that area. But the technology will also advance there. But you can buy smart appliances. And I, I think that's kind of getting at what you're, you're focused on there. Thank you both. And thanks, Russ, for that question. And now, Neil Pearson um, from Neil Pearson, how much power is lost in transmission and distribution? And what is being done to reduce that loss throughout the system? I, I can handle the bulk transmission. For the bulk transmission, which is the big uh, uh, high voltage lines, uh, losses are in the 8, 8% to 10% range. Now, on the distribution side, I don't have a clue. So I'll leave that to Brett to answer. Yeah, again, we're very much learning as the distribution system becomes bi-directional, but I would assume it's two to 3% on the distribution level. So it's, it's significant, uh, but what are we doing about that? I don't know that on the transmission level, I'd let John answer that, what's being done. On the distribution, we are investing in technology that really allows us to optimize and reduce those losses. And I think it's very achievable in the very near term. Thank you, John. Anything to add further? Or? No, I don't. I, I, I'm not an expert in the transmission system, and so those are just some numbers that I've heard uh, discussed uh, at meetings with Bonneville Power. And, and it, like the, the, we have DC lines, direct current lines, and also AC, alternating current lines with California. They tend to have different losses. I think the DC lines are more efficient, but then you have to convert the DC back to AC and so forth. And there are losses associated with that also. Okay, thank you. And so on to the next question from Jan Margosian. Several years ago, PGE built a battery storage facility in East Salem. How did that work out? And actually that question is from Lex. <laughs> yeah, great question. That, that has been such an incredible pilot for us. We have learned, I mean, I can't share how much we've learned. It's just amazing. Now I'll tell you though, that that asset now, I, gosh, it's probably a decade, if not more older. And so it's stale technology, but that's where you're seeing battery storage now really take off. But more importantly, we are learning what systems are required to optimize how that fits in with the broader portfolio. So, I mean, that was such a great, great project for, I think, PGE as well as our consumers and community, because it really furthered our thinking uh, on an accelerated basis. Yeah, actually, several years ago, um, we produced another uh, program that PGE was terrific to be a part of and uh, gave a tour of that facility to several of us. So that was terrific. And so um, now from Kathy Lincoln, does Bonneville Power Administration work with you to hold back water power production to take full advantage of solar and wind when they are available and use that hydropower to offset renewables? They do. Uh, they do to the extent that they can. Uh, as I mentioned before, there are lots of operating constraints uh, uh, on the hydro system that are not related to power. Uh, there are certain, they have to keep reservoirs at certain elevations for resident fish. They have to release water for anadromous fish, fish that migrate to the ocean. Uh, there's a sturgeon and there's, uh, again, there's recreation, navigation limits, uh, irrigation limits. And so to the extent that they have the flexibility within those non-power constraints to store water when there's too much wind, they will. 
Uh, we do get into situations where there's so much wind that Bonneville can't store it. They have to shut off the wind. And that's, uh, you know, wind farms don't like that. <laughs> but it happened in 2012. And that's Good. what's happening in California with the solar. They, they have produced so much solar in the middle of the day. You might say, how can they pay us to take their power? Won't they be losing money? No, because they're still getting production tax credits. And it, they still make money, but they only make the production tax credits if they run, if they're producing generation. So they're willing to create electricity, even though they don't need it, and pay us to take it. Because in the end, they're still making money to do that. But it gives us a whole bunch of... Of, of energy in the middle of the day that, as Brett said, is very inexpensive or or they even pay us to take it. Yeah, it sounds like battery storage is critical. <laughs> so, um, uh, and now this from an anonymous person, is there a way for those considering adding solar to our roofs to obtain information independent of solar companies on realistic costs and state and federal tax and other rebates and any comparisons of options? That's a phenomenal question. And as I mentioned, PGE is developing our thinking in a rapid hurry in this area. Today, we as a utility do not offer uh, investing in solar on behalf of you, the customer, and providing you the type of question, information on the types of questions you're asking. So you do have those third-party vendors available to you today. But be on the lookout. I think this is an area we definitely need to improve because we have a lot of customers like this person that are asking these questions. And it just is a clear demonstration of how quick the grid is evolving. And we as a utility need to do better to make sure that we're there to support our customers. Thank you. And this is the very last question from Kathy Moyd again. How will PGE determine the emissions from the generation of power obtained from other states, especially by 2040, when non-emitting requirements is in effect? I'll avoid going into the dirty detail of how you track electrons, because this is a very sophisticated question. Uh, but at a high level, every electron is tracked. So it's tagged in a system. So you will generally know what the source is. Now, if you don't know the source because you're buying from somebody like BPA, you are DEQ works with the region to develop what level of emissions is assigned to that general portfolio of BPA. And so as you think over time, as the region decarbonizes, potentially the emissions rate associated with market purchases will potentially go down, but it may actually go up. But we do have robust systems in place in the region. This is not just PGE to track those electrons so that we really know what it is that we are producing and buying and how we're serving load. Well, terrific. Once again, thank you for both of you. This presentation was such a great one on its own, but was terrific in combination with our January 7th program, which I encourage people if they did not attend to go out to salemcityclub.com and uh, click on archives and look for program recordings and listen to that because the two programs together probably will provide you more information on energy than most people have heard in a lifetime. You've been listening to the plans of Pacific Northwest Power companies and planners as we head into the future, pulling more power all the time from traditional and renewable energy sources. KMUZ would like to thank Salem City Club for the audio recording to make this program. And the entire panel discussion and Q&A is permanently posted on the City Club archive at SalemCityClub.com. This is Community Radio KMUZ Turner, broadcasting local news and public information for the Mid-Willamette Valley. This program is aired on Friday at noon and repeated Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock. Thanks for listening.